team. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, would you open up to page, excuse me, <laughs> Psalm 111. Uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles in front of you, you're going to find that on page 477. Psalm 111. <clears throat> if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 477. Uh, Psalm 111 is located in Book 5 of the Psalter of Israel. That's basically chapters 107 to 150. Uh, Some people are surprised to hear that um, because when they think of the Book of Psalms, they think of it as just one particular book because that's basically how it appears to us in our Bibles. But in fact of the matter, the Book of Psalms is actually a collection of psalms and poems and wisdom that span the entire time of Israel as far back as uh, the time of Moses and all the way up through the exile. Uh, now, the Jewish Midrash, uh, Jewish Midrash is basically the, the ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says this, just as Moses gave us five books of law, David gave us five books of Psalms. Well, that's a, that's a nice sentiment, and it's a nice parallel, obviously, but that's not the case, since many of the Psalms were authored by other individuals other than David, and many of the Psalms uh, are post-dated from David's reign. So, uh, obviously, they, while David is credited for the Psalms, um, he is just one of many authors uh, of this amazing book together. The point is, the book of Psalms is an amazing collection, and as a result of that, it has an organizing structure, and they're broken down into what's called the five major books. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about it because this is not a lecture on the book of Psalms per se. It's just kind of giving you time to open up to Psalm 111, basically. Um, uh, Actually, though, books four and five of of the book of Psalms, so book four is from chapters 90 to 106, and book five picks up at 107 to 150. Uh, All without fail, the key themes of these two books of the five books of Psalms, which make up the books, is hallelujah and or give thanks. In fact, Every single psalm, starting in Psalm 90 all the way through the rest of the book to chapter 150, contains at least one or two of these both themes, either hallelujah or giving thanks to God. So with that, would you stand with me as we read this amazing and short psalm, Psalm 111. The psalmist writes, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright In the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Every time uh, we have a reflection service here at Christ Community Church, and, and I apologize for not being here at last week's reflection service, I was sick. Apparently, I had bronchitis, a little bit of pneumonia, and the flu. So um, I thought it was a good time to stay home, and I called an audible and had Tim and the rest of the crew take over on Saturday night. But every time uh, we have a reflection service, I always think of the first two verses of this psalm. 
Because that's what we're doing when we reflect, aren't we? Notice what it said. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, I will give thanks to the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Here's a parenting tip. If you have young children and you typically don't bring them into our service on Sunday mornings, let me recommend to you, at least on Reflection Sundays, do that very thing. How amazing for your children to see and to hear other individuals from our congregation standing up and doing the very thing the psalmist is talking about, giving thanks to God in the company of the upright in the congregation. Because one of the benefits of that is they're going to realize, oh, it's not just my mom and dad are always going on about this thing, right? I'm in a whole community of people that value the same things. It's a wonderful way to help the body of Christ in your parenting of your children. So if you don't bring them here on Sunday mornings, when we have reflection services, trust me, bring them here. Because you just let to have to watch them watch other people, hearing what they're doing, their joys and victories in Christ, their struggles and sorrows, and how the Word of God is shaping them. Man, that is worth like a year's worth of good parenting right there. Um, but back to the text. Notice in our chapter here, Psalm 111, the, the psalm is speaking of God in the third person. Did you notice that? In other words, this is not a psalm spoken to God, but rather a psalm spoken about God to each other, which is why I think it's a very appropriate psalm for us to give some thought to on this Thanksgiving week. There are two things that this psalm speaks of, and, and we'll unpack them a little bit here. Basically, it is God's actions and God's word. And the way the psalmist combines them, to get them together uh, communicates an important truth. And, and that truth is God and his, his actions and his words are one and the same thing. In other words, God's speaking is his doing, and God's doing speaks to who he is. And you see that beautifully throughout, especially books 4 and 5 of the psalm. So let's go look at this one, Psalm 111. And by the way, just to let you know, we put Psalm 111 as your text, but the sermon's really not about Psalm 111. Um, basically, this is going to be an unusual sermon. It's not like a stream of consciousness, because I never want to do that to you guys. But on Tuesday, as I was thinking about Thanksgiving, I was reading through this psalm. Actually, I was reading through it last week in preparation for a reflection service, but I wasn't able to be here. So I was thinking about it again this week, and I thought, I, I, I was thinking, this is not a topical, although it is kind of a topical because it's Thanksgiving. In some sense, this is how I was thinking theologically about the topic of thanks and how theology should shape the way we actually interact with our cultural moments like Thanksgiving or the rest of our lives. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm just going to talk briefly about Psalm 111 and use the framework that we see in Psalm 111 as a way to think about what are some four ways we ought to be thankful in a Christian kind of framework. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. So all that to say is this, this may not follow the typical usual sermon structure, whatever that might be. Um, so look at verses 3 and 6. The psalmist recounts the greatest act of God in the Old Testament. Now I want to tell you, if you're new to your Old Testament, whenever you hear in the prophets or in the kings or the chronicles or in the majority of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Proverbs, when they're talking about the deliverance of God... 
There's always an immediate context per se, like if you're talking about Isaiah or Daniel, it's the, the, the exile or what's about to happen with the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But always in the background, all the time in the background, they're always referring to the greatest act of deliverance, and that was the exodus. So anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading a psalm and they're talking about his great works and those kinds of things, there's a good chance there is an immediate context, but behind that immediate context is lurking God's greatest act of deliverance, and that is when he heard the cries of his people and brought them out of their slavery into the promised land. And now, if you ask a Jewish person why that is, they'll just say because of the Passover, the Exodus was such a great thing. But as a Christian, you know why that's such a huge thing. Because the exodus itself is what? A symbol, a type of what Christ did. He heard the cries of his people when we cried out from our sin. And he brought us from deliverance, from slavery, into the promised land. That's the gospel, right? So that's always in the background. Now, in particular, sometimes the psalmist, or in this case, you'll, you'll hear hints that confirm, oh, they're actually talking about the exodus, So look at, for example, verse 5 and 6. He's talking about the great works of the Lord, and then we have these strong hints that he's actually talking about the Exodus. He provides food for those who fear him. Does that ring any bells? So you might have been reading that and goes, what does that have to do with anything? Well, they're talking about the manna that God gave them from heaven while they're wandering in the wilderness. And immediately after that, he talks about his covenant, right? So, So he provided food for them. And he remembers his covenant forever. Well, what happened in the wilderness? God gave them manna at Sinai. God gave them his word. So we know, oh, he's definitely talking about the Exodus. And then verse 6 seals the deal. His inheritance to them of the nations, the conquest of Cana. And so in verses 3 to 6, the psalmist is talking about the wonderful works of God, the work of God in the Old Testament, the deliverance from Egypt into the promised land. And then in verses 7 through 9, the focus switches suddenly to the precepts of the Lord. You see that in verse 7? That's another way of speaking of his word. And the way he is talking about both uh, this event and his word almost interchangeably, as powerful as the redemption from Egypt was and is, so equally powerful is God's redemption promised through his covenant word to his people. So here's an important point. Here's an important point that I'm drawing together here. God's work in history and God's word of promise are both saving realities to his people. And you see this constantly in the book of Psalms. God's work in history and God's word of promise are both saving realities. So the question then is, okay, so what does this have to do with thanksgiving? As I said, there is a framework for a biblical thanksgiving that we see in this psalm, as many of them in in books 4 and 5, so chapter 90 all the way to chapter 150. And they often recite these same truths, these two truths. Number one, God's salvation history, in other words, his actual inbreaking into our world, our reality, and doing something. God's salvation history, his work in history, and his covenant instruction, right? Or we might say here his word of promise or the Bible or scripture, they work together. His speaking and his doing, one makes a people and one begins to shape them. And we see this, friends, this theme all through the Bible. God's word goes out and it creates a people and it shapes a people simultaneously. So, while we as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, 
can be and should be thankful for many things if our faith, and if you know anything about the history of this holiday, it is a uniquely Christian holiday driven by that motivation. If our thanksgiving is going to be uniquely Christian, our thanksgiving has to be filled with something more than the standard fare that everybody should be thankful for. You don't have to be a Christian to be thankful for good health, for your family, for friends. So the thing I'm putting to you is, what makes Thanksgiving, what makes your Thanksgiving uniquely Christian? Does that make sense? When we gather around that table, if all I'm thankful for is the same thing that the non-believer is thankful for, I'm not letting the word of God shape me the way it is intended to do so as we see here in the Psalms. So with that in mind, I just want to give four brief thoughts on a framework of thanksgiving that should orient all other thanksgiving. And it is tied to 111, but really it's taking into account just our Christian faith. So here's the first one. It might seem obvious, but it isn't. Um, thankful for the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This comes right from our, our Psalm, verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty are his works, and his righteousness endures forever. Friends, the person of God... I'm pausing from dramatic effect, and I talk a lot too, way faster than I ought to, my wife always says. Friends, even as Christians, never ever to be assumed, always to be made much of the fountainhead of reality itself, simultaneously inexplicable and inescapable. God in three persons, or the way our ancient fathers used to say, three persons that make up the one being we call God. And I've said this before, he, God at the very source of the Christian faith is the, the, the answer that our society is looking for but can never find it. When you think about the triune God, and that sounds odd to say it that way because we're usually talking about God the Father or focusing right on Jesus Christ or like a series on the Holy Spirit. But they're together. The triune God is community and unity and diversity living in eternal harmony. And that's what we need. Think about it. the community in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet the unity of the triune God, co-equal in essence and power and purpose and being, and the diversity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is distinct from the Father. In John chapter 17, we get a sneak peek into this amazing fellowship, this amazing relationship, this, this love that existed in the Trinity from eternity past that Christ is saying he's going to bring his people into, and without which we have no access to that. This wonderful harmony of community, unity, and diversity all together. And at a very 10,000-foot level, friends, just think of it this way, because I can't get too deep into any one of these points. Culturally, because we were made in his image, we are longing for that, yet we can never, because of our sin, bring the, the equilibrium to that. So let me give you an example. If you happen to come from more of a, 
a, a, a traditional culture kind of background. The, the concept of unity is probably more strong with you. Things by like what I mean by the unity is conformity, not in a negative sense, but, but like structure, family, duty. You resonate with that. You understand that. But if you come from more of a, a progressive cultural background, for you, the diversity aspect is something you might tend to focus on. Uh, uh, freedom, individualism, uh, experience, that's the thing you're looking for. And, and, and so you may gravitate, depending on your cultural background, more to the unity aspects, family and duty and all that, or the diversity aspects, individualism and freedom. But, but none of us really get community either, because even in our cultural enclaves, we don't want to hang out with people unless they're just like us. But if you think about it at that level... Our society seems to be polarized on these kinds of family and and duties responsible, those things, or individualism and experience, and we can't seem to appreciate the the values that the other side seems to bring, and we're at tensions with one another. Why do you think that we can look at society and say, wow, we're kind of culturally divided down that area? Well, that's because we're all made in God's image. But because of sin, we are unable to look at the other values and go, oh, that's good. I need more of that. Oh, that is excellent. That's something that grounds what I'm doing. We're always at war. But you don't see that tension in the Trinity. There's a community in unity and diversity, and it lives in perfect harmony. And because we, as his creation, were made in his image, we long to have that, but because of our sin, we can't. We just like double down on one aspect or the other and see the opposing values as not complementary, but problematic. And so we're at war. Now, you might be thinking, I'm thinking culturally, and that's very, very politically, that, that's very true, but, but also culturally as well. The point I just want to get at is that everything about this triune God is a beautiful mystery to us. Everything about him. Let me quote Martin Luther King Jr. is brilliant at this. He says, I love this quote, the greatness of our God lies in the fact that he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. Again, there's that, that almost diverse poles, but they, they, they exist beautifully together. One is strong enough to surround us with justice, and one is gentle enough to embrace us with grace. God is neither hard-hearted nor soft-minded. He is tough-minded enough to transcend the world. He is tender-hearted enough to live in it. So the first thing we need to be thankful for is the triune God He is the fountainhead of everything our society is looking to have but cannot because sin has destroyed us. Which leads me to the the second thing to be thankful for this holiday season is thankful for the gospel. See, God's mystery to us would only lead us to despair had he not provided a way for us to be restored to him, to allow us to embrace and be engulfed by this amazing balance of community, unity, and diversity that exists in the Trinity. And so... The gospel, briefly, has two aspects of it that we want to be thankful for. Number one, the historical uh, objective reality of it. Number two, the subjective personal aspect of it, right? So so there's both aspects of it. Let, Let me talk about one at a time. Number one, the historical reality of the gospel, the objective historical reality that Jesus Christ Actually, it's Jesus the Christ, right? Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is his title, means the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, second person of the Trinity, entered into time and space. That's just mind-blowing. See, the problem is most of you have been Christians for too long, and you're just like, ah, tell me something new. Think about that. 
But not only just entered into time and space, the season which we are about to celebrate beginning next week, Advent, the incarnation. He entered into time and space and fulfilled the righteousness of God, satisfied the justice of God, displayed the love of God, and secured eternity with God so that lost humanity could be true humanity again by being born again by trusting in that gospel message. So there's this historical uh, objective reality of the gospel. But there's also this, this personal subjective aspect of the gospel as well. And what I mean is that, you see, the gospel exists whether or not you will accept it or submit your life to it, the gospel is historical reality, which is why history matters of the Christian faith. This is why history matters. It's just not myth. It has to be grounded in the reality of did Jesus Christ come into time and space? Did he live? Did he die? Did he rise again? Which is why this, this Easter we'll talk about evidences of the resurrection because the historicity of the gospel matters. But there's also this personal aspect of it as well, this interaction that you have with the gospel when you yourself are changed by it, where you experience the benefit of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, uh, conviction of your sin. I don't know if you've ever thought of that as a benefit, but it surely is. Conviction of your sin, a longing for holiness, a longing and love for God and his people, those are the benefits of the gospel. Here's something really important to think about. And, and I, don't want you to, I don't want you to shake the foundations of your faith, but I think it's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul does talk about examining ourselves. Here's something important to think about. You can mentally, you can fully believe in the gospel historically and not benefit from the gospel personally. Say that again. You can assent to, you can agree with, and you can even believe in the gospel as a historical fact. There are many liberal scholars who do, but that doesn't mean you will personally benefit from the gospel. Do not confuse the two. Just because you accept the historical reality of it doesn't mean you understand the personal reality of the gospel. In other words, you will benefit from the gospel when you take the historical truth of the gospel and you personally apply it to yourself. That is to say that you embrace and you understand that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for you because you understand you owe God righteousness. It's not just that he did it for any old schmo Joe out there. He did it for you because you owe God righteousness. Have you ever thought of that? That Jesus satisfied God's justice for you because you violated God's holiness. You, you violated it just like I did. It's not just some abstraction. It was done for you. That Jesus displayed the love of God for you because he loves you. He doesn't just love the world in abstraction. He loves you as his creation as his son, as his daughter, that Jesus secured eternity with God for you because God made you to live for eternity. Not to just put around this world for the 70 or 80 years you might have, but you were made for eternity. 
Friends, are we thankful for the gospel that restores us to this amazing, surprising God? Are we so used to it? Or are we just happy with the historical reality of it and haven't embraced the personal reality of it? G.K. Chesterton. you got to know he's smart by the way he looks. A disheveled guy smoking a cigar. In 1908, he wrote this book, and he described God in a way I've never heard described. I love it. Listen to what he says. A child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Every parent knows what that looks like. Because children have abounding vitality. Because they are in spirit fierce and free Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they're almost dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of childhood, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Thank God for the gospel that promise us to restore us to such an eternal Father. But how sad would it be to be in relationship with such a God and have no one to experience it with? And that's why thankful reason number three is thankful for the church. Isn't that the psalmist's point in Psalm 111? In the company of the upright, in the congregation. Guess what? That's you, friends. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Our joys are multiplied when you live in fellowship with people to share them with. But also in this broken world, our sorrows are lessened when there are others to bear them with us. Right? Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Why? So fulfill the law of Christ. To the Romans, in chapter 12, verse 15, he said, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I just, I just love how in the Bible, there's this emotional vitality that's spoken of that we as Christians are supposed to have. I th- think about that balance. We are not to be like the world. We're not to be like the hedonists who just simply live for pleasure and distraction. Now, you don't have to think of yourself, when you think of hedonists, you probably think of some extreme person But when you think about what hedonism is, we're just living for joy, pleasure, and distraction. We shouldn't be like that. On the other hand, we shouldn't be like the nihilist that sees doom and gloom everywhere, right? On the one hand, some people see the the chaos and the brokenness of the world, and they just embrace it, and they're overwhelmed by it. And then they're like Eeyore. They're always like, woe is me. It's a bummer, whatever. Or they see all that, and they ignore it and try to divert themselves into entertainments, And it can be Christian too, right? Christian concerts, Christian this, Christian that. They're just being hedonists. 
But I love the emotional vitality that Paul talks about. Hey, man, when people are weeping, you weep with them because we're in a broken world. When people rejoice, you rejoice with them as well. The church keeps us in balance. Why and how? Here's how and why. Because we hold the gospel in hand. How does that help? Friends, we hold the gospel, humanity's glorious hope, if that don't make you excited, for our ruined condition. And so we are constantly walking in the tension of this reality that we are always knowing, man, the promised land is just around the corner as we're all walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And that, that tempers us. It fills us with joy, but it also tempers us. Like the gospel, there are two aspects of the church that, that we want to be th- thankful and thinking of. Number one, is the church universal, right? That, that is the eternal global reality of the church made up of every culture, every language, every race, every time, every continent. That includes us, but it transcends every one of us. You know what that means, friends? All of us here, if you are a Christian, we are inheritors of a legacy, man. That, that goes far above and beyond our preferences and the way we want to do things. But there's also the church local, temporal, personal. That's you. That's me. That's the people on this campus. That's this community. That's this South Orange County Christians together, us covenanting together to live in, in faith, hope, and love. One of my favorite verses, I love to give it as, as kind of like my email signature sometimes and my text signature, is 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3. Paul's writing to one of the a great local church in Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I just want to make two quick comments on this again. First thing I want you to notice, notice that all three of these, faith, love, and hope, are are outward-facing, aren't they? They they are actually outward-facing. Faith is directed towards God. Our love is directed towards one another. And our hope is towards the future. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, particularly the hope he was talking about was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that ultimate hope gives birth to intermediate hopes. Remember we talked about in in, in Romans chapter 8 you got to have a hope, an ultimate hope, that you can build your life out so when your intermediate hopes fall, your life doesn't fall with it. In the same way, what Paul's talking about here is ultimately the Thessalonians were looking to Jesus Christ coming back. But because they had that ultimate hope, it could also inform intermediate hopes. But in the same way that, that, that these three were outward facing, notice how, I mean, the Bible's so thick, guys. Faith is the past. It is grounded in the historical work of God in Christ upon Calvary's cross for us. What Jesus did, it's rooted in the past. Love is a present reality as I'm expressing love. We're expressing love to one another. And hope is hope for the future of what God is going to do. So these three, faith, hope, and love, they completely reorient our lives. And we find ourselves being drawn upward towards God, outward in love, and on towards the future and the promises of the gospel. That's all here in these just couple of verses of what Paul is talking to his brothers and sisters. Friends, our Christian faith, your regeneration, your salvation, means little to nothing. Let me say that again. It means jack squat, that's Rick Rodiver translation, 
If it does not pull you out of your fallen introversion about everything's about you, and if it doesn't bring you out to God, his Christ, and those around us. So let me be clear. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity where it's just you and God doing your own thing because you're sick of all of us hypocrites, right? I get it. We are hypocrites. But we can get forgiveness and grace. The point is, there is none of that in the gospel. Because everything about the gospel takes us out of ourselves and up to him and towards others. And we just see that right here in the Thessalonian church. So, one observation, all these are pushing us out. Second observation, notice how fruitful these are. So if you've been a Christian for a while, we might throw out faith, hope, and love. and you know, They can be abstractions, can't they? They can just be abstractions. It's the way you sign your email, maybe. But notice how when you're in a local church, they take on real, practical, concrete value. Because true faith, Scripture tells us, always leads to good works. In fact, James 2 says, if there aren't good works in your life, you should question your faith. True faith turns into good works. True love for people leads you to labor on behalf of others. Actually, the word that Paul uses here for labor of love is kapos. It it talks about the, the strenuous exercise that you would bring towards something. We might even say, this is not the text, we might even say when we talk about the labor of pregnancy, it's the same concept. Paul is saying there's a labor of love. Loving people, friends, will be inconvenient. Loving people will be hard. That's why Paul says it's a labor of love. But it goes out, it bears fruit, and true hope. Of course, expectantly waiting on the ultimate promises of Jesus Christ, but that informs his daily promises to us. It creates a fortitude in us to face life's difficult challenges. And friends, I know in this church, every week there is a mixture of joys and victories and sorrows and tragedies. Every week. And I know that this body of Christ is ministering to everyone appropriate to those situations. So, faith, hope, and love, they they are outward-facing, and they're also very productive. And Paul is saying this defines the Christian life. And all these are found in the church. Brothers and sisters around you, if you are a Christian, friend, can I say, you need the church more than you realize, and the church needs you more than you think. That's just the reality. Finally, and this last one, it's, it's, it's kind of not how I tend to be, so let me explain it. I think it's appropriate because, number one, we want to be thankful for our great God who is working through the gospel in churches. So those are the first three. But those churches are embedded in a context. So my last pillar of thanksgiving is that context. And this is this. I'm just thankful for the United States. Friends, the more I read history the more I'm astounded of the exceptional nature of this country. With all of our foils and shortcomings, and and yes, we have them, right? Every nation does. But it's from its very inception, the early settlers, they felt, and I quote, the fate of fallen humanity rests upon our shoulders. They believed that this new world was to be, and I quote, the last best hope of the world. 
If you read the early writings of William Bradford, uh, Governor William Bradford, some of you are familiar with him because he, he was the one that did the, the Thanksgiving prayer that that's kind of circulates. Uh, the, the lawyer who then became preacher or vice versa, John Winthrop, if you read their writings, the early colonial uh, colonies, the settlers of the Americas were like, I mean, they were intense when it came to Christianity. In 1638, when they established a new colony, a, a new colony in New Haven, Connecticut, they were so committed to creating a community that, that would reflect godliness and scripture that, believe it or not, they modeled the new community directly on the plan of encampment that God gave to Moses in the book of Numbers. Now, obviously, we don't need to take it that far, probably, but you have to love the heart behind that. They were so committed that the new world would be a community of godly people that they even set up their city planning based on the book of Numbers. The point is this. Margaret Thatcher, former vice or prime minister, said it best. Europe is the result of history, but the United States alone is the result of an idea. Friends, that idea, many of you know this, freedom of conviction, specifically freedom of religion. If for no other reason, hear this, if for no other reason the United States must continue to thrive because we are, I mean, for the time being, the epicenter of Christian scholarship, Christian publication, Christian thinking, and world mission. Other than England, no other country in the world, in world history has sent out more missionaries into the world. No other country been able to finance Bible translation, distribution, and proclamation around the globe like the United States. Again, other than England in the 19th century. Friends, for the sake of our brothers and sisters, who in at least 50 countries where it is outlawed to have a Christian faith, we have to advance gospel work. Just to give you perspective, between October 2020 and September 2021, worldwide, Nearly 6,000 Christians have been martyred for their faith. Another 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings have been ransacked, vandalized, or burned. 4,700 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentence, or imprisoned. And another 3,800 Christians abducted because of their faith. And this is all happening primarily in Islamic or socialist and communist countries. Now, I'm not sharing that to make you feel a sense of guilt. I am sharing that. So we realize the privilege and the responsibility we have of living on the greatest nation this planet has ever had. And to steward our time and resources for those ends. Friends, God has blessed us for this reason and will continue to bless any people who will make much of his glory. I was sharing with the elders this morning. Years ago, I read a funny quote by an envious world leader of America. He misunderstood why we were prosperous. His name was Otto von Bismarck. He's the Iron Chancellor of Germany. This is what he says. God provides special protection for drunkards, imbeciles, small children, lost dogs, and the United States of America. <laughs> His comment obviously was made to be a bit of a slight, but he was right. God has provided the United States with unique grace. But so too will God bless any nation any individual who will make much of his glory. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying the United States is a Christian nation. Nations cannot be Christian any more than your toaster oven can be a Christian. 
Only people can be disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? Christian is not an adjective, it's a noun. But the United States has allowed and has encouraged its people that freedom and has been blessed because of it. And we need to be thankful and pray for that providence and its continuation. So that's it. Four things to be thankful for. The triune God. The gospel that restores us to him. The church that is the result of that gospel and the country that allows all the prior three to flourish. I hope you are here at next week, beginning Advent. Actually, let me, let me say something. My, this is the way my mind works. Our country does not allow God to flourish or the gospel to flourish or the church to flourish. Let me say this. Thankful for the country that allows us to make the most of the prior three. That's more correct. Okay. Sorry, that's the way my head works. Um, next week, we begin Advent. We'll be working on the theme from that song. I think it's Joy to the World. The weary world rejoices as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I hope you're all here to start celebrating with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for (laughs) you. The gospel. Your bride, the church. And this wonderful country that we have the privilege to be born in. As we move into Thanksgiving week, Lord, there's much to be thankful for, but there's no less to be thankful for. Would you in your mercy and kindness make us more than we even desire to be? Forgive us of our hard-heartedness, our coldness, our apathy, our laziness. Change us because there's too much at stake for you to be concerned about what we want and our desires and our will. We ask that you would make us to be the men and women you desire us to be, even in ways we don't want. We want more to be well-pleasing to you, to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, and we know it'll be a joy. It'll be hard, but it'll be a joy to be made more like your son. And we pray this in his name. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.